So I want you to know at that point, I am so weak I cannot sit up like I am right now. I was in a zero gravity chair with my knees higher than my nose. I could take a couple of steps with my two walking sticks. I had trigeminal neuralgia, very, you know, severe, intense electrical pain from my temple down to my jaw. We are so lonely. We have our, our phones and, and we have a lot of social media contact that reinforces that we're unworthy and we're lonely, we're inadequate. That sense of isolation is so inflammatory. It's more inflammatory than smoking. If, if my house has smoke billowing out of the windows, but my kids are in there, I'm gonna run over broken glass barefoot to save my kids. So if there's purpose, we'll do hard things. We'll do painful things. We know that the further north you go, the more likely you are in modern society to have a low vitamin D. Uh, and we know that people with low vitamin Ds are more likely to have more aggressive disease states. We thought if you just took a vitamin D supplement, that would fix things. But you probably really need to go outside and get a tan. <laughs> uh, when I was nine, my sister died. And that was very traumatic for my family. You know, my family never fully recovered from that. When I added up my er, you know, at-risk childhood experience score, I was like, oh my God, it was way higher. This is Decentralized Radio. I'm Tristan. And I'm Ryan. The goal of this podcast is to help educate you on how to live your most optimal life. We will host industry expert guests to shed light on topics that matter. We are not gurus, rather two individuals who have had to pave their own path to health and vitality, independent of the centralized systems that plague modern society. Dr. Terry Walls, welcome to Decentralized Radio. How are you this fine Friday morning before Christmas? Oh, excellent. And thank you so much for having me. And thank you for all the wonderful work that you're doing. No, I appreciate it. You know, it's a funny story. I discovered you in 2019, late 2019, when I was first going through some of my own autoimmune uh, neurological issues. And I found your book actually thinking at the time that I had potentially MS. I had not had any MRIs or anything yet, but it was a super strange symptoms. And as you know, a lot of these things overlap amongst like various diseases. So I was just trying to rule things out and I found your book and it introduced me to the concept of mitochondrial health. Um, and I have an uh, interview that I did with you on 2020.link in the description below that goes over a lot of your story overcoming, you know, relapsing remedy MS and then secondary progressive. Uh, your story is just incredible. And I really implore people to read your book, which came out, I believe in 2014. And then you have your, I think the book before that was Minding My Mitochondria. Yeah. Um, yeah. And those are really profound statements because it sort of shakes the groundwork of what an essentialized medical paradigm is focused on the RNA and DNA genome. And you were like, hey, let's look at this mitochondrial DNA stuff. Yeah, you know, if we go back to the evolutionary history that we all share, about 4 billion years ago was the first inkling that biochemical processes were happening. That's the beginning of life. And then, you know, we continue to evolve. And about 2 billion years ago, we have mitochondria. Uh, and these ancient mitochondria are really bacteria that were engulfed by larger bacteria. And these uh, early mitochondria could use oxygen more effectively to create ATP or the adenosine triphosphate, which uh, all the listeners, I want you to know, that's the currency of life. 
that's what most of our cells are using to nudge the biochemistry that we need to have, have happen to sustain life. And so if your mitochondria are working well, your cells could do all of the work assigned to it. But if your mitochondria begin to get sluggish and they can't produce ATP as well, then that cell can't do the work assigned to it nearly as well. And for most of us, the cells that have to do the most work are the cells in the brain, the cells in the retina, uh, because that's basically uh, a, a camcorder, a video recorder, and the cells in the heart. And so when people have neurologic or psychiatric symptoms, I'm thinking mitochondria not working very well. If they're having difficulty with their vision, I'm thinking the mitochondria not working well. And if they're having heart-related issues, I'm focused on mitochondria. I, and so... And that's the people that I see have neurologic and psychiatric symptoms. Uh, they often have visual symptoms. Uh, sometimes they'll have cardiac symptoms. And I focus on helping them understand that we have to take care of the mitochondria. And that's a, and of course, no physician has talked to them about cellular health or about mitochondrial health. And I think that's it's such a profound thing because I remember when I read your book the first time, which was sort of just like really cracking the door open to all of this stuff and the nuances and complexities. I was thinking about just how many modern day, like the top modern day illnesses that affect people. We think about Alzheimer's, we think about Parkinson's, we think about heart disease. And if you think about mitochondria, we have most of our mitochondria buried in here and in here. And yeah. it's incredible because when you learn about the principal fundamentals around what create healthy mitochondria, you really have the power given back to you as to what you can do about it to certain degrees. But it is super empowering. And that's what I think is great about the mission you've been on is really patient empowerment. You know, Right. I want people to know that there is so much that we can do to create a healthier supportive environment for our mitochondria. And there's so much that we're doing that are poisoning our mitochondria, making it harder for uh, our cells to function well. And unfortunately, most uh, primary care physicians, most neurologists, most subspecialists um, aren't thinking this way. They're simply thinking, because they, they don't have much time. They've got you know seven minutes on average to see you, to make a quick diagnosis, and to tell you what the FDA-approved drugs are, they they aren't really under don't have the time to understand your diet and lifestyle. How your diet and lifestyle is either sabotaging or supporting your health goals. And it's and it's interesting. We re, we recently talked to Dr. Sean Baker just about um, algorithmic medicine and how a lot of physicians use algorithmic medicine to you know create protocols or prescribe prescriptions and stuff like that. And in some ways, I think it's created sort of a bottleneck like for both the doctors and the patients. And I think in some ways, um, because of the way things have been set up, it does lead to um, a, a lack of sufficient care. And I don't really want to blame anybody because like you said, it's how they were taught and how you have been taught originally in the right. centralized system. So it's just how it's been set up. And it's about changing that, which is a huge feat, you know. And, and part of this is that, um, and we all are, are guilty of this, we'd like to have the quick fix. 
and it's hard for us to change our habits. It's hard for us to change our understanding of the world. Uh, and anyone who's listening here, I, I, I want you to acknowledge that you have a current understanding of the world. Yeah, and it would be it takes a lot of evidence for you to shift your understanding. And it took a lot of evidence on, uh, for me to shift my understanding of uh, how to treat. Uh, MS, how to treat complex chronic disease. But fortunately, you know, God gave me a very devastating illness and lots of evidence that things were not working. And finally, I started on my path of, well, you know, I can still read, I can still learn. And so I very slowly, methodically started reading and studying um, for other progressive neurologic diseases, the animal models, and that's where I, I developed the theory that it was the mitochondria and dysfunction in the mitochondria that drove disability in progressive multiple sclerosis, in Parkinson's, in Alzheimer's, in ALS, in Huntington's. And then I would eventually realize that's what's driving disability uh, for people with many vision-related problems, many uh, heart-related problems, and uh, many systemic autoimmune diseases that also have neurologic and psychiatric problems. I, it's, and so over time, I would focus more and more on cellular health, more and more on mitochondrial health. I, and, you know, Ryan, at first, so the first four years that I was having this revitalization of my understanding, I was focused on supplements. I, and the supplements were super helpful. I'd create the supplement cocktail for mitochondria. It slowed my disability progression. And man, I was so grateful. Um, and I could tell if I took my uh, mitochondrial supplements, my fatigue was a little less severe, and I felt way worse if I didn't take my supplements. So I, I'm super grateful. Uh, I discover a study of neurological stimulation of muscles, and I add that to my rehab. Uh, that's very helpful. But then I had this really amazing aha, Ryan, and I laughed that it took me this long to have it. I'd been doing the paleo diet for five years. And I'd still, you know, I, I was going downhill, but, you know, a little more slowly. I was doing my supplements, you know, still going downhill, but a bit more slowly. And then I had this aha, like, what if I redesigned my paleo diet that I'd been doing already for five years based on this, what I'd learned about the mitochondria, this long list of supplements I was using, if, what if I redesigned my paleo diet based on those supplements? So that was you know, several more months of research. And I had this new way of eating in 2007. Now, for all of your listeners, I want you to know at that point, I am so weak I cannot sit up like I am right now. I was in a zero-gravity chair with my knees higher than my nose. I could take a couple of steps with my two walking sticks. I had trigeminal neuralgia, very you know, severe intense electrical pain from my temple down to my jaw. Uh, I'm beginning to have brain fog. It's very clear to me because I've had 27 years of worsening trigeminal neuralgia, seven years of progressively worsening uh, MS, that I'm on track to become bedridden by my illness, demented by my illness, and probably dying with intractable pain due to trigeminal neuralgia. I mean, a really very grim future. In December 26, 2007, I start this new way, very structured paleo diet. A month later, my physical therapist says, you know, Terry, you're getting stronger and he advances my exercises, and I can now exercise 10 minutes twice a day. 
um, my pain is less, my fatigue is less. And I tell Jackie, I want to try sitting up at the table in a regular chair. First time in years. And that goes well. And then a couple months later, I'm walking with two walking sticks in the hallways at the hospital. And then with one, and then with none. And, you know, I continue to uh, improve. And then in the spring, I uh, bike around the block for the first time. I, and after that, you know, I bike a little bit more every day. And in October, Jackie signs me up for the Courage Ride, which is 18.5 miles. And, you know, when I uh, successfully do that and I cross that finish line, you know, my kids are crying, Jackie's crying, I'm crying. And that fundamentally changes how I think about disease and health because that's when I realize. Well, you know, I, I am getting better. How much recovery might be possible? Uh, and it becomes my mission to uh, teach the world that there's a lot you can do. Hey, friend. Thanks for listening. If you really enjoy this podcast, it would be really appreciated if you left us a five-star review on Spotify, Apple, or subscribe to our content on YouTube. This helps us get to a larger reach and a larger audience to spread this wonderful free education. It's, There's a it's, whole lot we can do. It's truly incredible. And I kind of want to unpack that a little bit. First, I'd like to sort of ask just because when you wrote the Walls Protocol, I think the first edition was 2014, correct? Yeah, correct. What, how has that, or what, what have, what has changed, I suppose? And I know yeah. you had actually, you had a revitalized edition a couple of years ago too that I yeah. also read. So, but what you know, has changed? We, like, we uh, revised and updated it uh, and it came out just immediately before the pandemic, so mm-hmm. that was sort of too bad. Didn't get as much uh, publicity. Um, you know, some of the things yeah. that we we are aware there there's a lot more research supporting that electrical stimulation of muscles can be super helpful for people who have severe disability and are having difficulty exercising because it reduces the harm of physical activity. It also, if you do electrical stimulation while you are working out you get a lot more nerve growth factor produced in the brain, which is fabulous for repairing your brain, for making more synapses. Uh, that is just really, really uh, good for you. Um, and then I've uh, further refined uh, uh, my dietary recommendations. I clarified uh, we have an elimination diet variation. Well, we talked about FODMAPs, we talked about oxalates, uh, and uh, we further refined my recommendations on uh, ketogenic eating. You know, and I, and I do think ketogenic eating can be really very helpful for people with severe uh, mental health issues, uh, uh, with cognitive decline, uh, and we're, we're now doing a, a research that I'm very excited about, comparing the paleo diet and the ketogenic diet to usual diet for people with MS. Uh, and I really don't know uh, which which of those two diets will be will be better. There's a lot to say. The keto will be better, be... and a lot to say the paleo will be better. So it's going to be a fun test. Yeah, it's going to be really exciting. You have a lot of fun stuff coming up, and I sort of want to dive into this a little bit because I too have had some revelations even since we last uh, spoke and worked together in 2020, which was a very strange year. It was actually a good time to do some of this stuff because a lot of people like. Minus the frightening things, we're kind of forced to take a step back and look at themselves in the mirror and be like, you know, and what I do makes me happy. Like, is my health good? Like, should I be focusing on this more? And I remember during that time, because I was just kind of squatting at home because I really couldn't do much. um, 
I really, it was really great. It gave me like six, eight months of just like hardcore working on myself. Um, so so it's a great time to have, I mean, cause we're all forced to really reflect on, um, what am I doing? Is this, uh, the most important stuff? Or yeah. hundred percent. So one thing I wanted to dive into you, and this may be some concepts that I'm sure you're aware of, um, but maybe hasn't either been asked you too often or, uh, or not. So hopefully it's sort of a new discussion, but I've been doing a lot of reading around, um, various things around, uh, uh, Dr. Pollock's work on on water and exclusion zone water, um, uh, how N N EMFs affect uh, cellular biology on like an electrical level, and also um, with things like cytochrome C oxidase in the mitochondria, um, the fact that it is actually sensitive to light. And why I think that's important is that, like you were saying earlier, like all energy made in the human body comes from our mitochondrial mitochondria yeah. nano uh, nano engines. And I'm gonna trip over my words a little bit because I've been trying. Yeah work on the terminology. I know it fundamentally in my head, but it's like spitting it out. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's still yeah. a skill I'm attaining. But fundamentally what these are doing is that they take electrons from from our food. Um, and I've wondered if we think about life on this planet, like plants use photosynthesis to create energy basically. And have you ever thought of the idea of us taking food and like our mitochondria basically reverse engineering photosynthesis to create energy. Well, it, it, that is what happens. You know, the, the plants use light through photosynthesis uh, to uh, drive the chemistry of life for them to build all of their structures, their cell walls, their, um, uh, their vascular system, their uh, proteins. Uh, so again, they use photosynthesis in a very similar way that our mitochondria use electron transport chain to create ATP that we can use to drive uh, the chemistry of blood. Uh, and, you know, what I think is, uh, to me, quite fascinating, we have so many similar biochemical pathways, plants, bacteria, fungi, animals, which is why the basic scientists can learn so much about uh, physiology using yeast, uh, bacteria, flies, worms, rodents, uh, other uh, mammals, uh, including primates. It's not a complete one-to-one -one analogy with humans, but yeah. remarkably similar. We have remarkably similar biochemical pathways that have been shared across many species that let us understand how life works and gives us clues as to what we could do to be improving ourselves. Now, and I think that's really very helpful. I also look at this through an ancestral health lens, through evolutionary biology to say, okay, what have we done uh, globally uh, through our um, uh, ancestral societies in diverse parts of the world that were uh, led to reproductive success? What were the diet and lifestyle and habits that we had that uh, were helpful? And can we replicate or adapt our current living circumstances to mimic some of those success, those diet, lifestyle, and habits that our ancestors had? And, and then obviously, we're, we're going to do a fair amount of adaptation because 
We're going to continue to use our cell phones. We're going to continue uh, to work. We're going to continue to interact with our computers. We're still going to have to eat and exercise and do all that. But are there lessons that we could take from a close look at what our ancestors were doing? And, and I think there are. No, I totally agree. I think that's the completely right way to to view it. And it's once you sort of understand, I think that principle of understanding that we are connected to nature, it's not a separate entity. Like we're pretty much the only species that's really taken nature to an extent out of the equation because we have a very powerful thing between our ears that allows yeah. us to yeah. philosophize all this stuff um, and think about grandeur and and things like that. And it's, it's super great, but it, it is important that I think, and you do a great job of this and you showcase it, like simple things like gardening, like going outside, like, um, it, it all, does not have to be hard. No, and and that's the beautiful part. Honestly, is that the more you know, like knowledge is power, right? So the it can be your enemy too. But but, but yeah. the more you know, the better you can do. And I think truthfully, it goes back to really just showing that to people because ancestral principles and like nature's laws aren't really too difficult to understand. And once you kind of see it and remove, I think the most difficult part is removing the noise. And for me, one question I wanted to ask you is like, a lot of things changed for us um, during the late 1800s up to now through the Industrial Revolution, mm -hmm. uh, advent of modern lighting. We basically eliminated a bunch of our circadian mechanism by allowing ourselves to have artificial blue lit nights um, and, yeah, and disrupting yeah. circadian rhythms. Um what has what have been in your eyes like the the largest disruptors to our mitochondrial health over maybe the last 100 150 years what would you say obviously like we could talk about big food and all that stuff but there's so much are you self-employed or a small business owner and are tired of paying hundreds of dollars a month to centralized health insurance companies for minimal coverage because there is no alternative well i have good news for you there is and this podcast is brought to you by crowd health CrowdHealth is a more decentralized alternative to health insurance, and it uses community and crowdfunding to help its members pay for emergencies when they do happen. They incentivize and prioritize health and personal responsibility and share the thought that you should really only be using the centralized healthcare system when emergencies do happen. This is what I am on board with, and I have personally signed up for CrowdHealth since I left the corporate engineering world and the medical benefits that come with it. If you want to learn more, you can check out our episode with CEO and founder Andy Schoonover, or you can head over to joincrowdhealth.com and use code DRADIO, D-R-A-D-I-O, when you sign up to get a discounted rate of only $99 for the first three months. Centralized healthcare is one of the biggest issues in our society today, and I really love what CrowdHealth is doing to provide an alternative for people who care. So... When we outsource cooking and we started eating more and more packaged foods that have, you know, about 80,000 different food additives added to them that can confuse our biologic signaling. So uh, that's a big problem. When we started having more and more exposures to uh, pesticides and heavy metals uh, um, that's poisoning our mitochondria, uh, when our nutrient intake plummeted, and so our mineral intake plummeted. Uh, and so when we don't have enough zinc, enough magnesium, um, uh, in, in particular, I'd say zinc and magnesium are probably the two most common, but you have 
other uh, trace minerals, our bodies have to substitute something. So they substitute lead, mercury, arsenic, cadmium, uh, and that further accelerates the uh, poisoning. Um, when we yeah, don't have, um, we're not going to bed at night and we're sleeping in. So we're, we don't have our day-night cycle in sync with uh, the earth. Uh, that creates more problem. In a word only, we are so lonely. We have our, our phones and, and we have a lot of social media contact that reinforces that we're unworthy and we're lonely, we're inadequate. Uh, and that sense of isolation is so inflammatory. It's more inflammatory than smoking. It's more inflammatory than being sedentary. It uh, would appear to be one of the most inflammatory uh, drivers of all. Uh, and so the pandemic accelerated that uh, for our elderly, it accelerated that for, for our young people, it accelerated that uh, for the, the rest of the adults as well. We are lonely. Um, we, we aren't connected to our spiritual religious homes anymore. Uh, and that, for many people, erodes the sense of purpose. You know, and we can do hard things, really hard things, uh, when there's a purpose behind it. And, you know. No, I was just going to, I was sorry, I was no just going to this. Yeah, exactly. That's so big. No, I'll let you keep going because this light is great. <laughs> You know, if there's no purpose, I just want to have comfort. Uh, I just want to have pleasure. If I have purpose, you know, if if my house has smoke billowing out of the windows, but my kids are in there, I'm going to run over broken glass barefoot to save my kids. If my dog is in there, I'm probably still going to run over broken glass. Maybe not quite as fast, but I want to save my dog as well. So if there's purpose, we'll do hard things. We'll do painful things. But if there's no purpose, I just want comfort. I want comfort and pleasure. And that's where mo many of our people are living at. There's no purpose. So they want only comfort and pleasure. Um, and that uh, set them, sets them up uh, for risk for uh, progressive uh, neurologic and psychiatric disorders. And that's, and that's super big because I think about it. My mom is a first grade school teacher and she's been teaching, she's retiring this year. She's very excited. Um, I'm getting in getting her into all the weird health principles. She read your book oh, like good. years and years ago when I read it. Um, but she's been getting into a bunch of stuff. She'll send me pictures of her grounding. <laughs> and oh, I, good, think, good. I think it's so funny, um, but great. Uh, but she, I've had a lot of discussions with her about her teaching experience over her like 30, 35 years. And she's, really expressed to me the level of psychiatric illness she sees in very young children. So we're talking six years old compared to when she first began teaching. Yeah. She's never seen these levels of anxiety um, in children. And of course, over the last three years specifically, it's only exacerbated uh, the issues. And actually during 2020, um, because a lot of young, young kids were home and they weren't in primary school or they weren't in like kindergarten, first grade in person, they didn't develop a lot of social skills. And so she's seeing a lot of underdeveloped social uh, skills within young children. And so it's going to be interesting to see 
this generation grow up. Um, but also just, I think while technology has been such a benefit and I don't ever want to say we should throw it aside and like go live in the woods, which would be fun for like a week or two or a month. Um, but it's about how we view it as a tool and how it's used. And like you were saying with, with social media and stuff over the last couple of years, we are innately communal animals, you know? So it's very important to have that sense of community and, and purpose. Um, and I think, like you said, that is such an under discussed issue within physical health manifestation and mm-hmm. mental health stuff. You know, my, my daughter uh, did a, a lovely backpacking trip uh, in Northeast Iowa, uh, uh, a lovely three-day weekend. Uh, she has an aura ring, came back and made uh, some really interesting observations that her heart rate variability was dramatically higher. Her stress level was dramatically lower. Her sleep was dramatically better during those during that uh, three day weekend. And her observation was, man, be you know, and her anxiety was dramatically uh, uh, better. So her observation was, you know, well, I think that was phenomenally good for my mental health and my physical health, and I should probably do this on a regular basis. And yes, I mean, the more time that we spend outside in our gardens, in uh, the forest or in the meadows, taking hikes and camping, the better our cells will function, the better our bodies will function, and the better our our mental health will be. And and I'd say physical health will be. That's it's what is that was one of the revelations I had. Like my my grandparents have a cabin up in uh, northern Michigan, and it's it's not like per se isolated, but you're in the middle of the woods. There's no mm-hmm. there's no Wi-Fi, um, so you're you don't really have internet unless you use your LTE on your phone. Uh, they have a TV that has like three channels, <laughs> and then like a VCR and like a DVD player, and you're pretty much forced to just sort of embrace uh, being in the moment. And I think that's also a very valuable skill, like practicing mindfulness and being in the moment is something I've greatly struggled with um, over the last, well, forever, now that I think about it. But it's such a mm-hmm. valuable thing to take that time. And I think, if anything, I have become so, for anyone that's gone through struggles like you have, Dr. Walls, or, or I have, or anybody listening, I feel like you really end up at a fork in the road where you have an opportunity to perhaps in some ways become the best version of yourself or let your situation destroy you. And I've seen both happen. Both happen, yeah. But it's amazing how through this for me personally, I have been able to find a sense of purpose with with my life. And, And I think that it's valuable for anyone listening to, you know, take a step back for a minute and really just like when you have time evaluate, you know, like what are my personal goals? What are my values? What, what do I stand for? What do I want to achieve with my life? And it doesn't need to be some grandiose thing of like owning a fortune 500 company or something, but it, 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 I think it's important for everyone to have purpose. And I see it within my own folks generation. I look at sort of, uh, late boomer generation, gen X kind of growing up in that sort of, uh, zone of, yeah, go to school, you go to college, you get a job that pays well and you raise a family and then you retire and then, you know, that's kind of the life cycle. You know, I think it's, um, anyone who's listening, let's say you have a chronic disease and you've not recovered, 
you're still suffering from your um, autoimmune issue that's causing you neurologic or psychiatric symptoms. I want to encourage you, uh, and I challenge you to think about how you can give back to your tribe, even though you haven't recovered yet. There are things that you could be doing to support your community. Um, and I invite you to think about that, to reach out to your um, support groups for that community and start giving back. Because it is, it will help give you purpose. It will help you be connected. It will decrease the loneliness. And that is some of the most profound self-care that you can do. I think that's really powerful. And because I feel like in those moments when you are at a really desperate stage or or you're just like feeling really down because you're kind of in the middle of it. I don't have that clarity yet. Um, you sort of feel like you're just a lump in space and that can really further drag you down the hole. And so I do find that to be very uh, valuable. How have you dealt with, and I know you've dealt with this with, with working with clients individually as well, is how do you help people get out of the hole of, identifying almost their entire being with their diagnosis. Because I know that was a struggle for me for a long time, and I see it every day. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, one of my uh, great, the questions I love asking is what I talked about earlier. Was if your home was beginning to be on fire, smoke right out of the windows, who or what do you care so deeply about that you'd rush in and just go sick? And nearly always it's, you know, uh, my kids, my grandkids, uh, my dog or my cat. Those are the most common answers. Occasionally, it's some a piece of work that they're on. Uh, and then we can begin to ask, okay, so what can we do to improve your self-care so that you could be there more effectively for your children, grandchildren, your dog or your cat? Uh, and that helps them with their self-care. Uh, and then uh, we have the conversation about who who... Are you connected to outside of your family? And then, you know, if it's their church, great. I want to get them going back to church. If they don't have a church, then I'm like, okay, let's get you uh, volunteering for an organization that could speak to your heart. And it might be the Humane Society. It might be the local pet shelter. It might be uh, a patient advocacy group for um, that supports people with your illness. I don't care what the group is, but I want them volunteering somewhere. And uh, then we sort of work out uh, what little easy volunteer action they can begin doing, because that will help them get connected. And if they can't do either one of those, then I encourage them to get started with a mental health counselor, because if we can't get them looking outside themselves, uh, it's going to be a huge struggle to have that person be successful with improving their diet and self-care. Actually, it's really interesting to say that because um, I, <laughs> I, I, I think I think it's I think it's really important and it's great because I think it is an under-discussed part of, of all the stuff. And there was a great book that I'm sure you know very well. Um, I tell everyone I ever meet to read it. It's called The Body Keeps the Score. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of stuff that, man, goes on in here maybe 10 years ago or it affected you yeah. that is now manifesting in some form of ailment that you have as well. And it's super important to address that. And that's actually something I personally have been working on with my therapist doing EMDR, which is yeah, uh, yeah. eye movement desensitization, uh, basically. 
Um, but it, it's super helpful to just like process those emotions because you really don't know. Like sometimes I found that actually the very first thing that I did when I started developing really bad neuropathic pain, basically pretty much all over was my dad got me this book that we actually got for him, but he gave it to me to read and it was called calm the F down. And I read it. And when I did, I realized like, you know, I've had really bad worry, anxiety for 10 years before any of this stuff happened. And when I realized that like, man, you know, not everything I worry about happens. I think almost 30% of my pain was gone just reading that book, just because that's, I was able to lower yeah. that stress state. Um, and it's, it's really incredible what can happen just through that mind work. You know, um, in our clinical trials, um, uh, in one of the studies that we did, I did intakes for every one of the patients, uh, basically a functional medicine intake. Yeah, and I saw that every one of the patients had severe early life stress, um, which got me the like, wow, this is uh, pretty interesting. So then I went back and looked at the literature and saw just how much more probable early life stress, that is adverse childhood experiences are, in people with multiple sclerosis or serious systemic autoimmune disease with neurologic uh, issues. I, and the other thing that I did, Ryan, was it got me reflecting on my early life stress, which I had not done before. Uh, when I was nine, my sister died. And that was very traumatic for my family. My parents had, uh, you know, intense grief. Uh, and, you know, my family never fully recovered from that. Uh, so when I added up my, er, you know, adverse childhood experience score, I was like, oh, my God, it was way higher. And, you know, for, for most of us, we can look back once you get into the functional medicine space, you're being to think a little differently. You can see that there are many contributing factors. I, and so, you know, for me, there were lots of, you know, early antibiotics, uh, uh, private well uh, in, in farm country, uh, a lot of pesticide exposures, a lot of heavy metal exposures because of my art background, uh, toxin exposures uh, during medical school. But one I had not appreciated until I'd done that research was my early life stress that had been profound uh, probably for uh, 12 years. Uh, it, it's an, it's wow. really crazy. It's really incredible. And one thing I sort of wanted to ask too, just because you, you sort of mentioned it, this sort of sort of turn in the corner here. But um, like a lot of people in, that end up, you know, finding you, finding me, all these things sort of, they go on a conventional path for a while, then they sort of hit a dead end. Like I, I went to Boston Mass, met with like the best people you can meet with. Um, nothing bad to say about them. It was an interesting experience, but it sort of led me to the common theme of a pill for an ill sort of description mm -hmm. of, of medicine. And then, so that's when I turned to sort of functional medicine. I met you. Um, I met Dr. Charlin, who you work uh, pretty closely with and just did a really good uh, Parkinson's and uh, uh, basically a uh, series, which was really, really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and really, really profound. Um, but I found a very similar issue within functional medicine, where instead of it's a pill for an ill, it's still a pill for an ill, but in a form of a supplement. And while I think supplements can be yeah. valuable, how, where, where is the length? Because I mean, 
no one's perfect. I'm not trying to throw anybody or any yeah. ideology under the bus for sure. But, and I learned a lot, but I found the same frustrations within myself that I was now in functional medicine. And I've had a lot of people come to me with this where now they're taking all these supplements, but things haven't changed. And so yeah. that's when it occurred to me, for me, the biggest needle movers have been really taking serious, moving back to nature's principles, <laughs> like waking up with the sun, seeing the sunrise, all these things, and really moving outside the paradigm of of all the fancy lab testing, all the stool yeah. sampling, which are not valuable. And I yeah. believe there are certain scenarios, but I, I think that people get lost in there. And there's, well, I love just your, your thoughts because you've been on both sides. This podcast is brought to you by our lead sponsor, EMR Tech. EMR Tech manufactures high quality, high powered red light therapy devices. In my opinion, red and infrared light are two of the biggest nutrient deficiencies in our modern society due to our indoor lifestyles. Red light therapy devices like the ones from EMR Tech can help combat that by providing high powered red light while being indoors. I personally use mine every morning and every evening. Red and near-infrared light is extremely beneficial for energy production in our body because it boosts mitochondrial function and penetrates deep into the cell. It is also extremely beneficial for skin health, eye health, as well as our circadian rhythms. And this is actually pretty much why I bought everyone in my family an EMR Tech red light therapy device for Christmas. EMR Tech panels are low flicker, low EMF, and use targeted wavelengths such as 830 and 630 nanometers, amongst others, to get extremely effective results. For more information, go to emrtech.com and use our code DRADIO10 for 10% off your order. That's emrtek.com with our code DRADIO, D-R-A-D-I-O, 10 to save at checkout. You know, part, uh, one of the wonderful things that happened to me in my functional medicine journey was that as I got into functional medicine, my clinical practice was in the Iowa City Veteran Affairs Hospital. Uh, and so I couldn't do any of the fancy functional medicine testing, and I couldn't use any of the fancy functional medicine supplements. I could do basic primary care labs like a CBC, a lipid panel, a vitamin D, a uh, folate B12, homocysteine, a hemoglobin A1C. And that was my lab toolkit. And the people I saw were people who were disabled, who were no longer working, who were living on food stamps, who lived in rural Iowa or rural Missouri or rural Illinois, shopping at small town rural grocery stores or the small town convenience stores. And I still had remarkable results because all that I could get people to do is we willing to work with me to really change your diet and lifestyle. And if you were, you could work with me. If you couldn't do that, I'd fire you and send you back to your primary care doctor. So like, come back when you're ready because this is all we're going to work on. And we had remarkable success, which led to word of mouth demand, which led, forced me to continually reimagine my clinic because I, I wanted people to get in. So we went from small group to large group, to small classes, to large classes, to very large classes, uh, to my deciding I needed to teach the public. I, and I, I then hired someone to take over uh, my lifestyle clinic. And what I, what I learned by having those constraints, which at the time, Brian, really pissed me off because I, yeah. you know, I wouldn't be able to do the advanced testing. I wouldn't be able to use those advanced uh, 
uh, uh, supplements. But because I couldn't, and because I was like, no, I you know, felt called it to, you know, practice this way, the way that I could, which was diet and lifestyle. What I managed to see is I could have remarkable success without the advanced testing, without the advanced supplements. I couldn't fix everyone. And absolutely it's true that I could have made much further progress if I got to see them in in my private practice where I could do the advanced testing and the advanced uh, 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 supplements. However, the other thing that I saw in my private practice is that sometimes people would come, do the advanced testing, take the advanced supplements, and not change their diet or lifestyle mm-hmm. because they weren't yet ready to do that. Yeah. And that's, and that's the, that's the, the nuance of being the practitioner is being able to meet your client where they are at and helping them along their unique journey, which it's such a beautiful thing when, when things work right. But it's, it's true. I saw a very interesting, someone made a very interesting comment to me about how like, ah, man, just like changing your lifestyle is like so difficult and most people can't do it. That's why it it was sort of like a a bad pitch. They were trying to pitch me like a, a, a partnership with some supplement thing. But my, my, my thought when I read that was like, you know, I get it. It isn't easy. It is hard. It is hard, it, but you have to. You have you, know, you can't say the same. If we look at uh, uh, people who start an exercise program, uh, within a year, well, I know within two years, only 10% are still doing the exercise program. If people start a new diet, uh, within two years, uh, only 10% are still on that new diet. We, we just published a, uh, a, a paper. Well, actually, it's been accepted. We have the page proofs. It'll show up in PubMed probably in two or three weeks. Uh, it's about um, our uh, health. We used health behaviors, diet, meditation, exercise in people who are newly diagnosed with MS. We were able to show that at a year, 95.1% were still doing the steady diet. uh, 90.5% were still doing the walking exercise, and 75% were still doing the daily meditation. That's awesome. That is extraordinary. And um, that's part of the reason that, you know, in my practice we're so successful is that we help people actually do the diet and lifestyle things. And we admit that this is hard. It is really hard to make new habits. It is really hard for us to reframe our understanding of the world to, uh, so that we understand that this is vital to my health and vitality. So, yep, I'm going to do it. It is, it is hard. And the, abandoning the old uh, processed foods that are delicious, plentiful, and that we crave and that we probably have some level of addiction to is really hard. You're going to go through withdrawal, craving, you'll be irritable, you'll be cranky. Um, moving again is hard, uh, be, be, uh, sedent, being sedentary, uh, uh, we're wired to prefer that. It is hard. I admit that. This is really hard. It'll be some of the hardest things that you ever do, which 100%. is why it is, it is so imperative that we work with people to find out what really is the deepest thing they treasure in their heart. And then we help them craft what are the goals that they have so they could be there more effectively for the, that person or pet that they treasure in their heart. 
And then, so, and it was my veterans who taught me, that's the most important work that I have to do with my patients. I have to help them clarify those two points. If once we get that clarified, then they're willing to run barefoot over broke glass to meet those goals. But if you don't clarify that, then they just want pleasure and comfort and you won't move the needle. 100%. I think that's the most valuable thing. One thing I always ask people that come to me almost upon our first conversation is, what would you do if tomorrow you woke up and your health was back? What would you do with your health? Yeah. And people haven't really thought about it. And it was something that I was, someone asked me actually about a year and a half ago, and I, I was still kind of in the heat of stuff. And I was thinking about it and I was like, that's why I want to do this. So pursuing my NTP, I'll come yeah. back for the walls. <laughs> you know, and, and, and that will be marvelous because those of us who have been through enormous difficulty, uh, you know, uh, enormous disability, we understand the depth of pain and despair uh, that people are, are coming from. And then we can more easily relate. We can more easily talk about, okay, we have to do things at a small, slow, step-by-step progress where you can be successful. Yeah. One last sort of thing I want to ask you on this topic before we kind of switch into uh, funding difficulties there and then furthering research in in these fields is sort of this idea of um, what I've noticed and the reading I've done uh, particularly with MS, we see higher rates of of these illnesses or MS specifically in higher latitudes. And of course, there's correlation oh, yeah. vitamin D's and things. But I was wondering if you think there's a, a level of like I'm from Wisconsin originally. Like mm-hmm. in the winter, you do not want to go outside. But I found fundamentally one of the most important things you can do for yourself is embrace seasonality. So get yeah. a little bit cold. You know, embrace the sun when it's warm in the summer. Um, yeah. And and sort of these principles that are honestly like pretty much all free. They're not free of discomfort, but they're all free. <laughs> um, yeah. But I I wondered like I know these are things you have thought about as well with that northern latitude increase in certain illness. And I I wonder if that's tied to sort of like higher indoor lifestyles, um, yeah. obviously socioeconomic issues. Um, but I'd love to sort of your take on on that because for me I found that you can sort of combat these by embracing the seasonality of where you're at. There's a big thing right now in the health community of health influencers moving to Costa Rica or, Costa Rica or Mexico. And I always tell people, you don't need to do that if you just embrace yeah, you the nature of where you yeah. are. I mean, you're in Iowa. I'm from, I lived yeah. in the Midwest for a while, so I get it. You know, <laughs> it, it, and um, our, we have societies that were tremendously successful in the Arctic. The, the Yupik uh, had tremendous reproductive success in the Arctic. The Vikings had tremendous reproductive success uh, in Scandinavia and in Iceland. We don't have to move south. We can be very successful all over the globe. But um, if we have more of an ancestral health uh, point of view, we know that the further north you go, the more likely you are in modern society to have a low vitamin D. Uh, and we know that people with low vitamin Ds are more likely to have more aggressive disease states. What is super interesting, Ryan, is uh, supplements, we thought if you just took a vitamin D supplement, that would fix things. 
Yeah, in the prospective studies, it doesn't really has it done as well. Maybe if we did vitamin D plus vitamin K2 plus uh, vitamin A plus magnesium, we would have better outcome. And, and probably we would. But you probably really need to go outside and get a tan. Yep, 100%. Um, it's, it's super so I, I tell people, you know, take vitamin D uh, plus vitamin K, take magnesium, take a multivitamin, and get a tan. Get a deep tan without a sunburn. Uh, and then yesterday, fade during the winter. Uh, if you can keep your vitamin D in the top half of the reference range, you'll be less likely to get pneumonia and COVID. Or if you get pneumonia and COVID, it'll be more likely to be mild. But you still need the tan because yep. we know that light, when it hits my skin, in addition to raising the vitamin D level, also speaks to my immune cells in very favorable ways. Uh, and we, we've known for some time that if you have an autoimmune skin disorder, getting a tan is one of the best ways to regress that autoimmune skin disorder, whatever the skin disorder is. Yeah, it's actually really fascinating. I, we've dived pretty deep into um, just melanin on the podcast. We've interviewed uh, Dr. Solis Herrera, who's wrote like a whole book on it. Um, and the three different types of melanin, uh, things like pheo, melanin, uromelanin, and, and neuromelanin. And and that's uh, some crazy stuff. I, I won't, we'll have to get into that another time, especially with neuromelanin and things like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. It's just like, a, it's just this huge rabbit hole of possibilities that are super fascinating. Um but I'd love to sort of shift now in the last like 10 minutes of our show to just talking about what you're doing now because yeah. you brought about like some really quote radical ideas to to uh, yeah. modern medicine. And I love kind of two part question. One is like, how has it been received over time? And then two, have you seen bottlenecks in pursuing your research? Because a lot of centralized science yeah. seems to be pretty captured um, by pharmaceutical endorsement. So- how have you been able to sort of circumvent that or strategies you've had with, with funding your research? So super interesting. Uh, my, I've been very active you know, on social media. Uh, I had my successful uh, TED Talk, uh, and we have an interest, uh, robust email list. Uh, and I, I see patients. And through that, we've had grateful patients help fund our research. So my early pilot studies were funded through philanthropy. Uh, then the MS Society funded the uh, Walls versus Swank diet study. Uh, then again, a grateful patient uh, funded uh, 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 postdoc scholars. And uh, that, uh, this grateful family also funded my current trial comparing the keto diet and paleo diet to usual diet. Now, at first, when you know, I was so active on social media, it made the university very nervous. So, you know, they sat me down and said, you know, you be careful. You don't, that you're not making claims. Uh, uh, and so they taught me how to speak carefully. So I was talking about improving physiology, supporting health, uh, and careful not to make claims that I'm treating, cure, or preventing disease. I'm just letting your cells work better, and they do the work. Um, and... I keep writing grants to the NIH, uh, and so far uh, we've not been funded. But it is interesting. The criticisms are getting less and less um, uh, hostile. Uh, and actually, I'm, I'm very optimistic that we will be getting funding from the NIH soon. And be, even though I've not been funded by the NIH, we've had robust funding from our grateful patients. So I've been presenting our research 
uh, every year at the major scientific meetings for uh, uh, multiple sclerosis. We'll have three research posters at Actrums again this year, the Americans Committee on the Treatment and Research in MS. We've had, uh, I, I published uh, 60 uh, peer-reviewed uh, 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 papers and posters. Um, we have presented at the uh, Consortium of MS Centers, which is the premier international meeting of MS clinicians and scientists. It, you know, we started going to that meeting in uh, 2018. Uh, and people you know, thought it was really pretty radical and maybe a little dangerous when I first started talking about all this stuff in 2008 and I got banned and, and terrible things were said about me on the internet, et cetera, et cetera. But I just kept going where I was invited. And now when I go to these international meetings, uh, the uh, MS meetings, uh, you know, the clinicians are stopping me, asking questions, and they're whipping out their phone and saying, Dr. Wallace, could I have my nurse get a picture of you and me? My patients would really like that. Of course, I say, yeah, of course, I, I'm happy to do that. So we are making progress. Uh, Dr. Snetzler uh, did a, a really interesting network meta-analysis comparing um, uh, uh, all of the dietary intervention studies, and there were 12 studies, eight diets, uh, the Mediterranean, uh, ketogenic, anti-inflammatory, low saturated fat, calorie restriction, uh, fasting, uh, paleolithic, uh, in the usual diet. And so, to see how they impacted fatigue and quality of life. What we saw was for fatigue, it was paleo, Mediterranean, low saturated fat, with paleo being about 50% more effective than either low saturated fat or uh, Mediterranean. And then for quality of life, it was paleo, and Mediterranean with the paleo being twice as effective as the Mediterranean diet. You know, people are recognizing and celebrating our um, our work uh, in the dietary research space uh, for the stadium MS. So it's a lot of progress. It takes 30 years to change the state of care. We're 15 years into it. I'd say the next five years, this will get much closer to the standard of care and certainly within the next 15 this will be the standard of care that when you're diagnosed with MS or a autoimmune neurologic, an autoimmune disease with neurologic symptoms, you'll be told that yes, we may have FDA approved drugs, but just as important is improving your diet. And hopefully they'll be acknowledging that which diets are the most effective, but there are many diets that you can consider. Totally. And, I, and uh, it's super fascinating. Like I've been, just doing a bunch of a bunch of digging on myself, and I think it's amazing. Even with like like going back to just the sun exposure thing for men, like the sun's wavelengths are like fifty percent red infrared. Your mitochondria like straight up suck that in and make, love that. Yeah. It's it's crazy because it's you just go there and it's free. Even in the winter, you got it. So it's like there's really no excuses to to not you know taking on some of these principles. Um, as we kind of go out of the show, I'd love for you to talk about your current research study you're recruiting for and how people yeah. can find that. And I'll have info on that in the show notes as well. So um, we have a really exciting study comparing the time-restricted olive oil ketogenic diet to the modified paleo diet, which basically people know as the Walls paleo, uh, to usual diet. People come to Iowa City at month zero, month three, month 24, and, month, uh, and you get your uh, walk-eat assessment, hand assessment, vision assessment, uh, and some uh, surveys at every point. 
And you also get an MRI without contrast at month zero and month 24. Uh, and everyone uh, comes in, you get your baseline assessment, and then you get randomized into one of three diets. The reason we randomize is that lets us have the strongest evidence that diet has some impact. All three groups are vital to our success. The two intervention groups will meet with the dietitian, will get trained on their diet. Uh, the intervention group will uh, will not meet with the dietitian, but the intervention the the control group won't meet with the dietitian. But the control group will get a monthly tip sheet from me on things that they can do to improve their diet. And I anticipate that all three groups, will, in fact, will have uh, some improvements. One of the uh, interesting questions that we have is what happens to brain volume? Because we know people with MS, and that includes me, by the way, are, as a group, our brains are shrinking 1% per year. So that's why we have higher rates of anxiety, depression, more frailty, more nursing home care. In my clinical practice, I see anxiety and depression go away. Um, we see mental clarity greatly improve. So I'm very hopeful that, in fact, we will see brain volume loss get back to healthy rates of aging. That's less than 0.3% per year. And I expect that all three groups will improve because people who go in diet studies want to improve their diet. So I think my control group, when I give them the monthly tip sheet to improve their diet, they're going to improve their diet, most likely. That's super exciting. Yeah. So the the uh, website that we have that tells people more about the diet is terwalls.com forward slash MS study. And there's a, a little yellow bar that I want you to click to complete the survey to see if you're eligible. And we're looking for people with relapse or admitted MS. But even if you don't have that, I want you to screen so you can be part of our patient database because we periodically do uh, survey-based studies so, so you wouldn't have to travel. You could be in one of those survey-only-based studies. That is so awesome. And like, I appreciate really uh, all the work that you've done. And I'll have all that information that you just said in the show notes. Beth got me all of it. So it'll be easy to access. Look in the description. Go fill out those forms and and be part of this great work that's happening because I think it's really important. One thing, last thing I was going to say is like on that rate of aging stuff, I think about a lot heteroplasmy rates increasing, not just normally, every decade after something like yeah. six or something like that. And I, I really think about like every summer when we go out in the summer sun, like just hanging out in the in nature, that's naturally our heteroplasmy rate will go up. And then if we really embrace the seasonality of winter, especially if you're in northern latitude, you have access, that's how we can shrink down our heteroplasmy mm -hmm. a little bit. And so it's really about, you got to be a little uncomfortable with being uncomfortable. And, and it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's truly about embracing all these things that we talked about on the podcast and amazing things happen. I always tell people your story first because you're one of the great examples of you come back from not being able to sit up to riding bikes to hiking. Like you know, and I things. can now jog 20 minutes on my treadmill. Yeah, yeah. It's like, it's 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 things that you would be told were could never not, not possible, could never happen. And, and, you know, and I completely accepted that. Um, that was just... And I'd done everything that I described that I was going to do just to keep using my hands because I could still feed myself, still wipe my own butt. And that's really, really valuable stuff you don't want to lose. So when I'm getting better, at, you know, I can walk around, I can sit up, I can eat at the table again. I had let go of the future. So I didn't know what any of that meant. I, 
It wasn't until the day I rode my bike that I allowed myself to think, how much recovery might be possible? That was the day the future came back to me. And, you know, I, I, I can jog 20 minutes, not fast, but I can jog. And now I'm like, I don't know how much, you know, how much further I, I can, I can, I can get. You know, will I be able to someday do a triathlon? I don't know. Maybe. Who knows? If you do, let me know. I'll train and we'll do it together. That's the goal. Oh, okay. Well, I'll start with the sprint triathlons that are, that are much shorter in duration. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you again, uh, Dr. Walls, for coming on. I'll have all your links to your socials, your website in the description as well. And I want to thank everybody for tuning in to this episode of Decentralized Radio. We'll see you in the next one.